Bob is not here. We have searched every square inch of this base, and all we have found is porno, porno, porno! Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpsons joke came from. Regardless, each week, we pick one that at least one of us hasn't seen, or hasn't seen in a while, Watch it and come together to discuss. I am your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me, as always, is the President Muffley to my Captain Mandrake, my co-host, Nate Story. How are you today, buddy? Good, yeah. You know, I feel like a cowboy riding a bomb into oblivion. (laughs) That's good, yeah. No, that feels about right. We're having a little bit more fun today. We both have beverages. You can hear, maybe you can hear mine on the mic. There's Nathan's. I'm having a little bit of... I'm having a gin cocktail. I don't really like gin, but it felt appropriate for the for the film. Sure, Cause sure. Because it's ma- made in England. Yeah, British and, inspiration. I like I like that. Yeah, and the wa- the war, all that stuff. So yeah, and I'm drinking Jameson. So there you well, go. There you go. Uh, to that point, this week we watched Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. You might remember this movie from such Simpsons episodes as Season Three's Like Father Like Clown. Season 5's Springfield, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Legalized Gambling, and Homer the Vigilante. Season 7's Sideshow Bob's Last Gleaming, and the couch gag from Season 10's Wild Bart's Can't Be Broken and Mom and Pop Art. Lots of episodes, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of episodes. We're only going to talk about one of them today, probably. and Well, at least in depth, but let's just jump right into this. Let's jump into the movie. Nate... How would you sort of like summarize the film? Yeah, so um, it is a two-hour conference call with Peter Sellers. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty uh, much. No, no, it's it's three intertwined stories about the absurdity of nuclear war. How about that? That's great. That is a that's put that on the <laughs> DVD box. <laughs> That's yeah. good. That's real good. Yeah, I, no, I think it's not bad. Okay, so that's, you know, that's kind of the big picture. But Adam, why did you choose this film? Because, you know, it's your it was your week to to decide what we watch. Well, so we'd, we'd done a film that neither of us had seen before. And mm-hmm. so we, one of the other things, as we sort of say in the intro, is that sometimes we're going to pick movies that we have seen before, but maybe haven't seen in a really long time. And Dr. Strangelove felt appropriate. Uh, maybe a little too appropriate. We're going to get into that. (laughs) So if you had asked me prior to this week what my favorite Kubrick movie was, I probably would have said Dr. Strangelove. Having said that, I'm on the record as saying I'm not the biggest fan of Kubrick's work. I think he is a very talented filmmaker. He just happens to make movies that I have no desire to watch. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, and most of his movies are, they're either, you know, they're, they're, very dark, very serious. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Strangelove is sort of the outlier in his filmography because it's a comedy. It's, I mean, it's a black comedy to be sure, but it is still effectively a comedy. It's considered by many people to be the, one of the greatest comedies of all time. I'm right back to differ. Um, but yeah, so I just thought it would be kind of a fun, uh, you know, there were lots of Kubrick movies to sort of pick from. Mm-hmm. And we we sort of, you know, you and I agreed that maybe let's let's start with something that's a little bit of a little bit lighter fare. Maybe not necessarily the obvious choice, because I think when you think of Kubrick, the films that come to mind 
to me anyways, are movies like The Shining or Clockwork yeah. Orange. 2001. Yeah, I kind of always forget that Strange Love is one of his movies. So, mm-hmm. um, and then of course it ends up turning out that, and this is what you sort of let me know, that this was actually like a huge influence on not just like the writers of The Simpsons, but apparently specifically Matt Groening. So it felt yeah. like a really appropriate choice to go with. Yeah, no, that all makes sense to me. And so what's the, what has your history with this film been? Yeah, so it's funny. I I know that I've seen it before, mm-hmm. but I do not remember when. I probably would have been in either high school or university. Like it certainly yeah. has been at least, at least 10 years since I've watched it. Yeah. But I think I first became aware of it in either one of two places i don't know if you you watch these or our audience remembers these but back in the early 2000s the american film institute had a bunch of tv specials like 100 years 100 movies 100 years 100 laughs 100 years 100 tense moments or something like that and this definitely was in numerous specials and in fact i would say like it's kind of funny that a lot of my introduction to classic cinema is either from The Simpsons or these AFI specials. And in some ways, it kind of like affects your viewing of things because they spoil a lot of the classic scenes. Right. But yeah, so I I definitely remember Strange Love being in that, and that would have been an introduction. But where I also very vividly remember learning about it was on the original Monty Python and the Holy Grail DVD, which was like a bare bones DVD. Remember back in the day when DVD like first came out and a special feature would include like animated menus. Like that was right. Right. That was a feature. That was a big feature. And (laughs) then maybe some trailers. And I remember on that original Holy Grail DVD that I saved my literally saved pennies to buy. It had the theatrical trailer for Dr. Strangelove on it. And I, I, which I texted you earlier to, I shared it with you. If you have not seen it, pause the podcast and go and watch the original classic trailer, Dr. Strangelove. It is one of the wildest trailers I've ever seen. And the fact that it's from like the 1960s is just absolutely crazy. (laughs) Dr. Strangelove. Or how I learned to stop worrying and... Love the bomb. A moving (laughs) picture. It's a piece of art in its own right. Yeah, very much so. Just, yeah, totally bizarre. I, I At the time, it must have been just like people ha- would have had no idea what the hell they were watching, I would imagine. But, you know, that's that's good advertising, too. It's like that would have piqued people's interest, I think. And I think watching it, I as a kid, I was like, what the hell is this thing? Like, I was <laughs> right. just so... Especially because it's on like it's on the DVD with Holy Grail, and so I'm like, well, yeah, it must what's be, the like, connection is there? It kind of similar in tone, mm-hmm, like that movie mm-hmm. is so wacky. Like maybe so. Eventually, yeah, one day I finally watched this movie. But but what was so interesting, and that's why I think it was kind of fun to, to pick this, was like I remembered the sort of the scenes that the famous scenes that come from it that have been parodied ad nauseum and referenced ad nauseum. But I didn't really remember the film as a whole. Yeah. So it was really kind of interesting to go back and revisit it because it was almost like seeing it for the first time. Totally. Yeah, How yeah. about you? What was your story with this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my I think mine was similar in that it was it must have been a decade ago the last time I saw it. I think I've only seen it once. I I think it was probably in college I decided 
Mm -hmm. I thought it might've been in high school, but I don't think it was that early. And I think that I watched this because I had seen other Kubrick movies. Right. And, you know, I'm a big fan of some of his movies. I was talking to uh, my wife, uh, Emma, about this just today. But, you know, Kubrick is one of those directors that I have tremendous respect for. Mm-hmm. And every time I've seen one of his movies in theaters, I've mm-hmm. loved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah. And but it is a toss up when I'm watching it at home, whether I'm really going to enjoy the film or I'm going to fall asleep. It took me multiple tries to get through The Shining um, <laughs> because I would I would start it and be watching and enjoying it. And then I would fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> and that happened probably two or three times before I got through it. And that's and that's the thing is like he is a filmmaker for the, the cinema, for actually going and seeing it in theaters uh, that is the way to to watch his movies. I think I would have loved to have seen this movie in theaters, but I think I had seen A Clockwork Orange first, probably, and then 2001. I might have seen Full Metal Jacket before this as well, but I think I was just working my way through, like you know, Kubrick's filmography and uh, came to this. And at the time, I don't think I got it at right. all, and. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually the opposite of you. I don't remember the scenes, like the specific moments that people always think of with this movie. I just kind of remembered the overall tone and aesthetic and, and plot, but I didn't really remember any of the moments. Um, and part of it, yeah, I mean, part of it for me is just that like, you know, you're much more tuned into British humor. Right. And, and it's, and it's funny because Kubrick's not British. But this definitely has a British sensibility, which speaks to why it might be on like the Holy Grail DVD, right? right? In terms of, it's just, it is bone dry, right? I mean, there are no, there are very few punchlines in this movie. There's a couple, but like most of it is just like, it's the situation, it's the characters, it's the delivery. It's all of these, these very sort of subtle things that make up the humor of this movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's just totally not my style, I guess. And um, that's one of the things I love about The Simpsons is that it can pair stuff like that yeah. with with stuff that's a little bit more on the nose, a little bit more punchline-y, and it's kind of agnostic about where the humor comes from. It's so funny because I never would have I never would have pegged this as British humor. Mm, interesting, but you're right. There is there is something to it. It's funny because like watching it, one of my notes is this is supposed to be a comedy. And I think (laughs) I I think part of it is the timelessness of this film, because obviously Mm. we're recording this in 2022. And for those maybe listening a little far in advance, I don't know. uh, There's a war going on right now between Russia and Ukraine and nuclear threat has sort of resurfaced in a way that it probably hasn't since the end of the Cold War. Right. And so there was something about this that. I don't know. It just it didn't feel as funny because I think when I watched it the first time, the idea of nuclear war seemed so far fetched and so yeah distant totally. that it just it was just humorous. Yeah. Whereas now I just kind of was sitting there being like, oh, no. And it's yeah. funny, too, because one of the films that that The Simpsons referenced in Sideshow Bob's Last Cleaning, the, the the episode we're going to talk about today, is a film called Failsafe. 
Mm-hmm. And it was shortly after Doctor Strange Love. It's funny. I was reading some piece of trivia about this, and basically, like Kubrick found out that this movie was being made, and it was sort <laughs> right. of the same plot. And he basically had the studio buy it so that they could then like push the release date, and his movie could come out first. Right. But Failsafe is sort of it's a very similar plot in that basically the Americans accidentally launch a nuclear attack on Russia, and Russia wants to retaliate, and so the Americans let. Russia bomb New York as sort of like a tit for tat kind a of situation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I, I, I watched that in 2020 before, Oh, before Biden had been elected. And my oh. thought watching that was like, Holy shit. If this happened with this administration, we would all be doomed. Like, so it's funny how these, both of these movies, like, because they are essentially just like the absurdity of nuclear war, but also the absurdity of, politics yeah in fact the, there's that line from the general where he says war was too important to be left to the generals when he said that 50 years ago he might have been right but today war is too important to be left to politicians they have neither the time the training nor the inclination for strategic thought and that that moment Again, it just sort of It's pretty chilling. Yeah, it really <laughs> was. It, it, it was. And that's what I that was my thing. Like, you know, there were yeah. I chuckled a couple times watching it, and it was funny. My wife Morgan was she was working on her own stuff while I was watching it. And I was chuckling, and she turns to me and she goes, You're enjoying this movie? <laughs> clear, and clearly she was not. She was yeah. only like half paying attention, but she clearly was not enjoying it. So yeah, it was just sort of this weird experience of it just didn't feel as funny as I think it would have in a different time. Now, granted, when it came out, you know, it's the height of the Cold War. Right. So, I mean, I think that's the counterpoint is that in some ways, I think that this movie is him coming to terms with the existential horror of nuclear war by finally getting to the point where he says, the only way to understand this is humor. Because if you didn't think of it humorously, you'd go crazy. Well, basically. and it's so interesting because the, the film started off as this adaptation of the a thriller novel called Red Alert by Peter George. And Kubrick's writing it. And it was, for all intents and purposes, going to be a straight thriller. Very much in line with the kind of movies that Kubrick was making at the time. Yeah, yeah. And as he was writing it, he started to realize, like, the whole nuclear war thing and, and mutually assured destruction. It's, it's so absurd. It's, it's kind of funny. And they eventually realized, well, I think we need to lean into the fact that this is comedic and turn this into like this dark satire, because it's the only way we can actually tell this story. Yeah. So you're right. It's it like, there is this, this, this nature to it where it is very, very serious subject matter, but the only way to really grapple with it is you kind of just have to laugh. Right. Right. I think a lot of humor is based in that. It's often a reaction to something that's weird, right? Or weird mm-hmm. to you, right? Or uncomfortable. So I feel like it, it, in in a weird way, it's kind of gets to the heart of why we laugh. <laughs> yeah. Um. And, and so, you know, all that to say, like, I kind of get why people say this is one of the greatest comedies of all time. That said, I don't feel like I, la- I laughed out loud a couple times. But it also really strikes you with how terrifying it is. For sure. So, 
Well, before we go too, too much further, let's just sort of give a proper summary of the film. I found this summary in the actually the original press campaign booklet for the for the film that when it was released. And this is how they officially described the film. Hmm. A psychotic Air Force commander triggers an ingenious, foolproof, and irrevocable scheme, unleashing his wing of B-52 H-bombers to attack Russia. The President of the United States, unable to recall the aircrafts, is forced to cooperate with the Soviet Premier in a bizarre attempt to save the world. It is a very, very simple plot and premise, and I was kind of struck by that. Yeah. But... Everything that kind of happens is so not simple, which is really what right. part of what I found so interesting. And it's not it's not exactly plot driven. No, it's <laughs> definitely not plot. driven. So it's like when you compress the plot into a couple sentences, you get this. But, you know, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about this description is that it doesn't really get at the comedy of what happens. At no, all. no, not it's, at all. It, it sounds like a thriller. It sounds like the original script of like. It's a Cold War thriller. But it happens to be starring Peter Sellers, which I have right. to assume. In three roles. <laughs> yeah, I have to assume that would tip the audience off. Because, yeah. again, even that bizarre but brilliant trailer, I'm not sure that that would even give away the tone of the film. It would be, you know, it would intrigue you to try to understand what the hell this movie is, I think. Yeah. You know? So obviously, and we, we, we've already alluded to this, this film obviously has had a huge influence on comedy writers throughout history since its release. But mm-hmm. we sort of discovered in our research for this that it actually obviously played a huge influence on the writers of The Simpsons. They they sort of revere this as one of the greatest comedic films of all time. In fact, in the commentary, they more or less say as such, saying like, if you haven't seen Dr. Strangelove, stop watching our dumb show and go watch this movie. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think that The Simpsons sort of chose to to tackle this um, subject matter, which, again, by the the time these episodes are airing, the Cold War is effectively over. They're referencing the 1960s, which is at least 30 years earlier. So what do you think it was about this film that made it worth digging into? Yeah, I mean, as you were saying, like, I think the writers just seem to really love Kubrick in general. And this movie in particular, because it is one of the, the few movies of his that really dig it into a comedic sort of uh, vibe. You know, I, my, I haven't seen it, but my understanding is that Lolita also has this sort of dark comedy vibe, which is, again, kind of surprising given the subject matter. Well, um, to, not, not to interrupt, but to that point, another piece of trivia that I came across during this was that, like, the, the studio basically said Sellers could be in this movie, but he had to do what he did, apparently did in Lolita, where I guess he played multiple characters in that uh. film. And they basically said he can he can do this movie and cl- claim his ridiculously high salary that he was asking for. He's got to earn it. <laughs> yeah, he has to earn it by playing like four characters. And yeah. he was originally supposed to also play the Mad Texan that was eventually played by Slim Pickens, which is maybe one of the greatest <laughs> names ever. But he couldn't quite get the accent down, so that's why they gave it to him. Right. You know, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I actually don't see that much of the sort of humor DNA in mm-hmm. The Simpsons. And maybe maybe you you have other thoughts on that. But, you know, The Simpsons tends to be a little bit more on the surface. And that's not to, you know, denigrate their writing. The writing's amazing. But you get the jokes pretty quickly, and it is more driven by punchlines 
uh, sight gags, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Well, it's a cartoon. Like, it's a cartoon, it, right. not, to, not to sound dismissive, but it's a cartoon. Like, That's the style. It's a, Yeah, exactly. And I, it, again, circling back to what you said earlier, which is something, again, I, I really am so fascinated by the sort of British-ish humor of this. Mm-hmm. Because it isn't punchline or set up punchline. It isn't, you know, wacky sight gags, apart from George C. Scott's performance, which right. is <laughs> absolutely brilliant in this movie. It, it is very dry. And my laughter was the kind of laughter that comes from that drier humor where it's more like a chuckle or like yeah. a, like I'm enjoying this. You know, the the phone call with the president and the premier, which is my favorite scene, like it's it's there's no jokes happening there right right but it's i think it's absolutely hilarious but yeah the simpsons is much more like a mixture of the bugs bunny era of like slapstick humor mixed with this sort of not quite highfalutin but obviously because everybody's coming from the harvard lampoon there's sort of like this lampoon level of comedy yeah. so it's like and it's then mixed... like a sitcom sort of sort yeah of, and then the uh, sort of yeah, as the, well. the, the, the standard sort of sitcom humor all yeah. kind of rolled into one and i think yeah. that's what makes the show so special is that no other show before was mm-hmm. doing that kind of combining all of these elements together but but i do think you know the one thing that that i do see in terms of the humor dna of it is the willingness to satirize sacred cows, right? Yes. As they say, like politicians and politics in general or culture that, you know, or, or just human nature, all of those things are up for grabs in terms of what we make fun of. And sometimes the jokes might make you uncomfortable, right? Or make you think more deeply about certain things. You're right. Because I think one of the things that the Simpsons is so brilliant at is it's sort of satirical look at American society yeah. and that's the thing it kind of gets a lot of credit for and and there's nothing Dr. Strangelove is absolutely very clearly this like dark satire of nuclear war and I think you're right that's that is probably the thing that the writers are sort of revering is that it's able to tackle this very very deep and dark and difficult subject matter with such grace and humor. And that's something that they sort of were striving to achieve. And I think very, very much managed to achieve for, for years. I think the other thing that's interesting is that I feel like the, the interest in Kubrick and particularly this movie goes all the way back, as you alluded to, to like Matt Groening himself, he published at some point uh, a list of his hundred favorite things which includes a couple different movies, but number 16 on that list paired together, I might note, is Stanley Kubrick's Lolita and Dr. Strangelove. Hmm. And the only movies that top that on his list are The Wizard of Oz and The Third Man. And I, I actually love The Third Man as well. Uh, the Wizard of Oz, you know, not, not my favorite, but I, I understand why it's, yeah, why it's yeah. up there. It's, it's arguably one of the most important movies right. made. Right, so. right, right. Exactly. But, you know, one of the other interesting things about Kubrick and his influence on The Simpsons is his sort of reputation as a like an auteur. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways he has this in common with Matt Groening. I think Matt Groening maybe has uh, is a little more self-deprecating or, or something. <laughs> but when he actually negotiated his deal with Fox to, to take The Simpsons from a short into, you know, like an actual full show... My understanding is that he negotiated that 
Fox would have no creative control basically yeah. over the Simpsons. And the only thing that they could do is limit what they could do in terms of the censors. One of the ways that this often plays out is in fact that like Fox gets uh, lampooned a lot on the Simpsons. Especially in the episode that we're going to talk about. They right. take multiple direct shots at Fox. Right, exactly. And, you know, the interesting connection between Strange Love and Lolita and Kubrick is that this moment when he made these two films was right after he said goodbye to Hollywood and right. was sick sick of all of the sort of studio nonsense and interfering in, in his movies and all this kind of stuff. And he, he sort of leaned into that full-on auteur mode and set up a deal with Associated Artists to make these two movies with much the same stipulations that Matt Groening did as well, where he had much more creative control over these two movies than he had in the past, right? With uh, movies like Spartacus, for example, that were kind of more mainstream in the, in the way that they were put together. So I think that there's also just a respect for Kubrick's ability to kind of work within the system and find, find his own creative control in the system and really express a, a strong point of view in his movies. Yeah, you're right. They kind of, a lot of these filmmakers that these guys revered very much would be the kind of filmmakers you considered auteurs. You know, I, you think about the movies that immediately come to mind. Citizen Kane, The Godfather. Right. There's plenty of references to Woody Allen throughout The Simpsons. You know, these these are filmmakers who basically made the movies that they wanted to make that were not like other movies that were being made. And they they sort of changed the landscape of cinema. And The Simpsons very much did the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Well, let's dig a little bit more into the film itself. Um, and let's sort of go through our highlights and lowlights, as we like to call them. As I said, we've already sort of touched on, I think, that for me anyway, what was the biggest highlight was just how timeless the film really felt. I was really struck by just how much it resonates, specifically right now. I don't know that even well no because even like i said watching failsafe in 2020 you know with the previous administration in the united states the the idea of someone going rogue and causing a coup yeah maybe resonates a little it hits a little too close to home right yeah. like i mean it's interesting though because i feel like when we were growing up in the in the 90s and and even even post 9-11 in the 2000s nuclear war was not the concern so much right no, like never not even like i think about how my parents talked about how they had like the whole duck and cover stuff and like yeah, this yeah. shit you talked about in school for us it never crossed my mind right right like and terrorism terrorism was a fear and like right. columbine that was the big yeah that was the big game changer for our generation it was it was, it was terrorism right that was yeah. the sort of thing that that, that was ingrained in us was you know, both domestic and international terrorism, which was, you know, like, theoretically, it wasn't a uh, war between two states, right? It was mm -hmm. individuals and organizations that were acting against states. And that was sort of the whole thing. But I, I do feel like we're back in this era, maybe since 2016, where that feels more real and feels more like we're back in that moment of, of you know, the possibility of war between two states. Yeah. And you know the the doomsday device that is referenced in the film i just found it hard to laugh at 
a lot of this movie because it just didn't feel funny to me. Right. Not because it's not not funny. Like, I know it's funny, but it's just, it really did just sort of hit, it hits very differently in 2022 than it did, obviously, when I watched it 10 years ago. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, maybe we can talk about sort of one of the one of the sort of themes throughout the movie that adds this layer of humor to mm-hmm. a very serious situation, which is the sexual innuendo that permeates the whole thing, yeah. basically. From the very beginning, right? You know, the opening credits. What you're watching is two planes uh, in flight, and, and one of them is helping to refuel one of the yes. other ones. But, of course, it looks very much like the... One plane is mounting another plane. Yes, it is you know. very on the nose. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. And and especially because that doesn't really have much to do with the plot of the movie, other than the fact that part of it takes place in a plane. That really sort of sets the tone for, I think, what you're supposed to take away from a lot of the other cues throughout the movie. You know, I mean, really, the whole plot of the movie is about these airplanes that have gone rogue, and they're sort of penetrating the USSR and then they're going to drop their payload, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and I think that's that sort of plot. It's definitely an allegory, but then you also have all of these more on the nose things, right? Like the opening credits, you know, the first time you meet George C. Scott, he's, right. he's, you know, like pre- presumably, you know, post post coitus with this, with his secretary. And I, though I'm pretty sure he's taken a dump, which is like, I don't know. <laughs> I thought that was really funny that just yeah. the fact that she keeps trying to get his, a hold of him and he's obviously in the bathroom indisposed. Right. Yeah. And there's something again, the sort of pure absurdity of all of this is like nuclear war is about to break out. Well, I can't come to the phone right now. Cause I'm dropping a deuce. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, like there's just kind of softcore porn everywhere, right? Like every time someone opens a locker or anything like that, you're going to see like a naked lady or a partially naked lady. That's yeah, sort the of playboy. Yeah. In, in the, in the airplane. Yeah. All of that kind of stuff. And, and then I think, I feel like it, it kind of comes to a, a, a climax, so to speak, at the end where you, you really, this is the kind of the first time that you hear Dr. Strangelove speak at length. And he's sort of brought in to talk about like, what will be the post-war scenario where, you know, like how is, how could the U.S. survive nuclear attack? And they're sort of talking about what the plan is. And he suggests that, you know, well, they could all hide in the in the various mines around the United <laughs> States. But, you know, we'd really have to have a ratio of 10 women to one man to repopulate afterwards. Right. And while he's talking about this, he's incredibly gleeful. Right. Yes. He looks so excited to finally be talking about this scenario. And so you get the sense that he's kind of a sex pervert, <laughs> basically, that takes a lot of pleasure in imagining this sort of coercive scenario where, you know, men are able to have sex with multiple partners. And that's just kind of socially acceptable and and all and kind of to force people into having sex with each other to repopulate and all that sort of shit. So, yeah, anyway, all that to say that there's this kind of sexual energy that is permeating everything and. Even in the in the performances, I think too, like whether it's Strange Love or um, Tur- Turgidson? Turgidson? Tur- Turgidson? Turgidson? Yeah, Turgidson, Turgidson, yeah, I can't yeah. remember how. Turgidson, yeah, Turgidson, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know he he also gets really excited. You might say even aroused mm-hmm. <laughs> by mm-hmm. when he's talking about 
you know, airplanes coming in and bombing things, you know, there's just this sort of like sexual energy that's going on is really macho, but it's also like euphoric, right? They're just so enamored, I guess. And same with uh, Slim Pickens. He's got that vibe too. When he, uh, rides the bomb all the way to completion sure does well and not only that there's also you know we would not be the first to point out the sort of relationship between like the sexuality of war i think it's referred to as an mm-hmm. i was watching one of the documentaries on the dvd and they talked about how you know this is very common that like the gun represents the phallus and the bigger sure. the gun the bigger the phallus and and you know jack d ripper has this at one point he's like help me out with this and he pulls out his giant machine gun Right. So, yeah, it's it's definitely layered in there. This sort of sexual innuendo of like war and sex are kind of intertwined in this very bizarre. I guess it's like a macho masculine fantasy, as you sort of said. Right. Well, that's the thing, too. I mean, there are very, very few women in this movie and they don't I think there's have, only one. There might only be one. I think yeah. it's just. The, yeah, that's secretary. The secretary. And, and she's at the very beginning, just when you introduce that character and then she kind of, you know, more or less disappears it's very heterosexual and very macho, but it's all men sort of talking about it in the absence of women. Let's also talk about just the fact that it's playing off of those typical stereotypes, because at least up until the 1960s, there's sort of like, there's those distinct styles of films that were being made. So you had your war films, which Mm -hmm. were hugely popular. You had your Western roles, and then you had sort of your like cops and robbers kind of, characters and this kind of has all of those yeah so you know you have like george c scott right who again playing the the general or or whatever high-ranking military official and you know like one of his best known roles was Patton. yeah i was gonna say this and this is before Patton came out right yeah i i think i think that's right and but it's like you know he is he's playing this sort of classic you know, military figure, not not a Patton type, more like a kind of action hero type. Like, mm-hmm. he gets excited about the explosions and the weapons and stuff. He's not an honorable, uh, staid character. He wishes that the, that the U.S. had their own doomsday device at one point. Like, he's that kind of guy. And, and, you know, so in that sense, he's kind of, it's kind of, again, lampooning these characters, you know, these more serious war characters like a Patton that are, are meant to be honorable and respectable and all that kind of stuff. But he's also, arguably, I, I would say, with the exception maybe of Dr. Strangelove's final sort of monologue, he's the most over-the-top, absurd right. character in the film. George C. Scott wanted to play it straight, and Kubrick knew that he couldn't have him play it straight. So what he would do is he's like, they would they would shoot a bunch of scenes, and he's like, okay, now let's just do one really crazy one. Just like, we'll never use this one, but just go like so crazy and over-the-top, and like... Well, this is just a rehearsal, but we just want to get it all out on there so that, like, then we can, like, regroup and we'll do, we'll be serious and, like, compose. But let's just get it, like, a, let's do a wacky one. <laughs> and, of course, the wackiest version, that's the one that Kubrick ends up using. And I, I think of that scene where he sort of descri- – when they ask, like, can the, can the bombers do it? And he then describes how the airplanes are going to, like, fly low. And- Barrel that baby in so low. <laughs> you ought to see it sometime. It's a sight. A big plane, like a 52. Vroom! It's jet exhaust. Frying chickens in the barnyard. <laughs> yeah, but has he got a chance? Has he got a chance? <laughs> and he's just, like, he's absolutely manic. And it is yeah. 
again, it is one of the few moments where I did actually laugh out loud because the performance is just so absurd. But then you compare that to the sort of staid performance of Peter Sellers as the president, who, again, Peter Sellers at this point is like, he's making these wacky, you know, the Clouseau character, the, the, the party where he plays the very racist Indian character. But like he's playing the straight man in this movie and George C. Scott, this very serious actor, is playing the wacky character and Kubrick is sort of like juxtaposing and and flipping these 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 perceptions we have of these actors on their heads to get this perfect performance out of both of them. Yeah, totally. And it, it is great seeing Peter Sellers in these three different roles that are very, very different, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have, yeah, you have the president who is very, he's kind of the straight man for the whole movie, basically. Yeah. And then you have Mandrake, who is this British officer. He's like on an exchange program or something. I don't know. It's, it's kind of bizarre. But he's trying to kind of diffuse the situation with this other officer who is who has gone berserk, basically, and is the person behind the nuclear scheme that's taking place. And doing so in, in an American's view of a British person, because he's almost like the prototypical Hugh Grant character. Like he's, he's he, bumbling, he, yeah, he's kind of bumbling. And, you know, he can't really he can't convince this American and the whole American. He's like, I'm the rough and tough and you guys are soft. And and it's yeah. it's it's he very can't come right out and just say anything. Yes, yes, kind exactly. of Talk around it. Yeah. Totally. And then, you know, and then you have Dr. Strangelove, which is another very like over the top kind of uh, ridiculous role, which we can talk more about. But yeah, besides you, besides George C. Scott, uh, you know, in this military role, you have Slim Pickens doing a kind of cowboy impersonation. And I guess before this, I think he he had done a lot of Western roles. So that's not surprising. Um, and this was kind of his breakout role. I guess. Well, this is the other sort of hilarious or brilliant, I guess you could say, thing that Kubrick did. So again, that role was originally supposed to be played by Sellers, and he just couldn't get the get the accent down. So then I think they went to John Wayne, and John Wayne turned <laughs> him down. So then they hire Slim Pickens, but they ju- they didn't tell Slim Pickens what movie he was in. Essentially, they only <laughs> gave him the like his lines or the pages with his scenes, so he didn't know the whole context of the film. And so that's he's not playing it as a gag like he's playing it straight he doesn't know that he's in this like absurdist black comedy and apparently like other actors on set were like they they thought he was being in care like he was this brilliant method actor who was staying in character when he was like not on screen but he wasn't that's just how he is right so it's again like you're getting this it's this kubrick's brilliant way of juxtaposing like all of these actors to get to the heart of the comedy that he's trying to get at yeah. And by by not telling him, by the way, you're in a comedy, like it, it makes it almost funnier, which is just I think is just incredible. Right. No, totally. And then so then at the near the end of the movie, you get another one of these sort of American stereotypes. Right. So you got cowboys, soldiers. And then near the end, uh, this character, Colonel Bat Guano <laughs> <laughs> shows up and he's played by this uh, actor, Keenan Wynn who had been in, I think, like The Untouchables. And so, you know, he had played some of these sort of gangstery types. And he's and in the movie, he's playing it like that. He sounds like a gangster. Yeah. He's got that voice. That one's very subtle, but I do feel like it's still playing off of this, this sort of stereotype to, to get at American machismo, I think, is kind of what they're all revolving around, you know? For sure. 
Did you did you notice the I noticed it almost immediately and then had to look it up to confirm my suspicions. But did you notice the famous the world renowned actor who shows up uh, in a very small role early in the film? Did you catch I, the the James Earl Jones's yeah. first role si- si- situation? Yeah, which completely like I said, it took me out of the movie for a second because I'm like, is that was that James Earl Jones? And then I had to look it up, and sure enough, it was. But it's always funny when you see these like legendary performers in their like early roles because it does pull you out because you're like at that point they're not James Earl Jones they're just some random person giving a line but right. now you're like James Earl Jones cannot be playing that role like it's just it's just it's it, it it's crazy yeah and what a first movie too to be in I mean sounds like it was a crazy production you know I mean not not like the craziest it didn't go off the rails or anything but just the way Kubrick directed all of the actors sounds like kind of no one had the full uh, view of what was going on, you know? So I would love to talk about what I consider to be my favorite scene in the film. And I, I don't know why I love it so much, but I do. And it's when I think of this movie, this is the, the scene I think of. And it's the scene where president Muffley has to call the Russian premier and sort of explain what has happened uh hello hello dimitri listen uh, i can't hear too well do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little oh oh, that's much better (laughs) yes fine i can hear you now dimitri clear and plain and coming through fine so growing up my dad played me these tapes of the comedian bob newhart who sort of became famous for doing this bit where he would do one side of a phone call and it would be one side of a phone call, but for like a famous historical event. Hi, sweetheart. How are you? Again? <laughs> I, 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 I was get it, Bert. Uh, listen, Abe, I got to know it. What, what, what's the problem? You're, you're, you're thinking of shaving it off. Uh, Abe, uh, don't you see that's part of the image? Right, with the, with the shawl and the stovepipe at the string tie. You, you don't have the shawl. Uh, where's the show? But it's very humorous because you're only hearing one side of the phone call and, and you know, they're making references to... And anyway, so that was what immediately I always think of when I when I think of this scene is like, oh, this is kind of like that Bob Newhart bit. But again, Sellers is so good in this scene. You absolutely believe every second that he is actually on the phone with someone else. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders he had a sort of well he went a little funny in the head you know just a little funny and uh, he went and did a silly thing well i'll tell you what he did he ordered his planes to attack your country well, let me finish, Dimitri. Apparently, he improvised most of his lines in this movie, so I, I have to imagine that this scene was not scripted, and he just kind of knew where he was going. But, like, the timing of everything is so spot on. His delivery of things of, like... Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. It never ceases to crack me up. But again, it gets to the heart of like the absurdity of like, okay, the Americans are about to 
drop a nuclear bomb on Russia and the president has to make a sort of gentle phone call to inform them of this and try and convince them not to retaliate, which is just, (laughs) it's such an absurd thought. But then you also think of like, okay, what if this actually had to happen? And again, think of the current administration doing it, let alone the previous administration doing it. Again, it's hilarious. While at the same time, if you actually sit and think about it, it's deeply, deeply terrifying. Right. Well, there's like there's a great scene where he's on the phone with Dimitri and it's kind of like with Premier Dimitri where he's, you know, I think it's at this point, they're kind of like past the point of no return. Right. Right. And and so he's trying to tell him, like, you know, this is going to happen. Again, it's it's a one-sided conversation, so you don't know what, what he's saying, but you just hear him go, Dim- Dimitri, there's no point in you getting hysterical at a moment like this. <laughs> and it's like, that to me, in some ways, that kind of sums up what the humor that, that Kubrick is going for in this is, that, like, actually, this is the perfect time to be hysterical. <laughs> what the hell else are you going to do? We're facing nuclear annihilation, and there's nothing to be done about it. You know, if, if this isn't the time to be hysterical... When, when it is, is. yeah, exactly. right. Well, it's, and, it's, and like that's the that I, I just love how that sort of sums it up so nicely. Well, it also echoes my absolute favorite line in the entire film, which I have quoted many times in in my life, which is, "Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room." Like again, right. it's like, well, what do you mean you can't fight? Like it's just that's and he's he's very good at using the comedy for exposition, right? As well. Yeah. One of the weird things about this movie that's kind of interesting is that every once in a while, you'll get into a moment in the war room where they're basically just explaining how something works. Right. Mm-hmm. And they'll and the president will be saying, well, but what about this? And the and then the George C. Scott, he'll respond to him and just be like, no, well, that can't happen because X, Y and Z. And it is just exposition. But it adds to the whole absurdity of the situation. And the thing that is again, both funny and terrifying about this is that a lot of it is true. Mm-hmm. And right. And this speaks to the fact that like, it, this is based on a, a, a book that like was highly researched about how these things work. And so I think, you know, basically Kubrick just like lifted these parts from the book and just put them in verbatim, but they're played for laughs because they just seem so ridiculous. Just the idea that like, you know, one person at a relatively low level can just decide to start a nuclear war. And basically, once that has happened, there's no way to stop it because yeah. all of these uh, fail safes, you could say, are in place to make sure that, like, you know, the Russians can't intervene their communications and all of this kind of stuff. So they shut down all the communications, which means right. that they can't get a hold of them and, and all of this shit that is. The president even sort of brings that up being like, well, I thought I was the only one who could authorize this. And and George C. Scott is sort of does the line of like, well, uh, no, if you remember, we actually set up the And it's just again, it's like the best, you know, the best laid plans, plans of mice and men, like everything's in with good intentions. But it also facilitates the ability for a maniac to essentially end the world. Right. And it's funny. Well, to your point earlier, like this is, again, the the dryness of it all like these are not moments of like set up punchline and yet you're right like they are humorous partly because of how they're played and the the over-the-top performances but we what we didn't really talk about at all is the disclaimer that opens the film like before the the like the credits even roll there's this like long disclaimer that basically says 
you know, the filmmakers are want to reassure everyone that nothing that you're about to see is based in fact. It's not a true story. And in fact, we've been reassured that this could never happen. But allegedly, when Red Alert came out, some government workers or whatever basically read that book, realized, oh shit, this could happen. And they yeah. basically had to start putting things in place so that they basically couldn't accidentally trigger a nuclear war. Right. Which leads me to think that the that the disclaimer at the beginning was just bullshit. Like, oh, you know, yeah. they're, be, they're being told, oh, no, no, this could never happen. And in, in reality, the government bureaucrats are like, oh, my God, oh, my God, this could actually happen. We need to make right. sure that this could never happen. So yeah, that's just the official line, right, is that this could never happen. But again, it was a highly researched book. And, and the movie makes it into a comedy and takes some liberties. But like, I think a lot of the technical stuff is actually still in there. The other sort of like exposition thing that I, that I think is kind of interesting was when they're talking about how many people will die right near the end of the movie. And they're sort of saying like, you know, oh, well, if we did this, it would only be 20 million people, right? As opposed to 100, 150 million people. Yeah, no and, more than 10 to 20 million killed. Tops, yeah. yeah that's, tops, that's, tops. that's the line from George C. Scott. And it's like, I, you know, I think that, again, there's a real dark comedy thing in there of just like, our brains are not capable of thinking in numbers that large. Yeah. And so at a certain point, like the difference between 20 million people and 150 million people is just really hard to grasp. Right. Yeah. And so as, as we've maybe, again, it hits different in 2022. Like, yeah, no kidding. With, the, with the death toll of COVID, not to bring this down, but like that just goes to show that like we, we really are bad at, recognizing and contextualizing these sorts of numbers because right the you know that's what they're saying like the death toll of covid is higher than the death toll of world war ii or something like that and like this is completely preventable apparently like it's just god the timeliness of this movie is just it will never cease amazing me um, yeah for sure well you know one other thing we haven't really talked much about is the title character <laughs> dr strange love himself I feel like Dr. Strangelove is such an in enigmatic part of this movie that I really kind of struggle to understand. So, I mean, what did you think about this character? I thought he was from a different movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, I, uh, it felt like something out of a Mel Brooks movie. And mm -hmm. I love Mel Brooks movies, but it's just like the whole movie is so dark and satirical but like kind of played straight and then you know even george c scott while he's over the top he's still like it still feels grounded in reality and then he's, he feels like a sincere character yeah like, and then you believe you believe that he believes what he's saying exactly and then out of nowhere sellers is doing this like bizarre nazi impersonation and he's got like a alien hand that keeps like jumping up to do the hitler salute and he can't get in control and it's just like i i was just like what what am I watching? Yeah. And, and it's so funny because like, I'm again doing the research afterwards, like apparently, you know, if you watch those scenes, there's lots and lots of cutaways or it's not sort of played out in a master, like kind of the rest of these scenes tend to be because everybody on set, including Kubrick was laughing so hard at <laughs> sellers that he had to sort of cover up the fact that, the rest of the cast was laughing and apparently there's a couple of shots where if you look really closely like you can see the actors in the background are like stifling their laughter huh. and i'm just thinking like 
what the what are they laughing at like this is not like it's just it seems like a it reminds me of the worst of the will ferrell characters like where yeah. it's just like it's just some guy riffing who thinks he's hilarious and they're just gonna let him go like it just it did absolutely nothing for me for people to say that it's like one of the funniest moments in film and like even he gets the last line of the movie like it's just i don't know i and he and and you know like he's there for the whole movie but he yes. doesn't really play a role in the plot and and kind of only gets a chance to speak near the end, you know? And I don't know if it's like, again, it's hard to contextualize this in modern day, like, because the, the whole premise is that he was obviously a Nazi scientist who probably did weird ass experiments in, in World War II that defects to America and is essentially now he's working for us. Right. And so maybe it's supposed to be like a commentary on that, but like everybody's yeah, listening to him and, and nobody's, I don't know. Yeah. I think the, you know, the movie's named after this character, mm-hmm. right? And the character shows up super late, doesn't have a lot of lines, but does get the last line of the movie and has this sort of like long, not quite monologue, but people are asking him questions for the last like 10 minutes mm-hmm. of the movie or something. And he's just answering them. But I think that this character sort of represents the theorists who came up with the the systems of nuclear war, right? right? He's, he's the guy who designed all the fail-safes and all the bullshit that led to this catastrophe. And at the end of the movie, everyone's still listening to him, right? right? And so I feel like that's part of like the significance of the character is that Ultimately, all the absurd events of the movie were put in motion by theorists like Dr. Strangelove that play out the game theory of like, you know, well, if they do this, then we'll respond in this way and then they'll respond in this way and all that sort of stuff who kind of create this elaborate machinery that that are hard to wrap your head around. And if they actually played out, could be disastrous. And his and I guess, you know, like he's so gleeful about this, the the idea of getting to start over new and populate the world in this wonderful way with you know one man to ten women that eventually he can he can walk again and you know the last line of the film but like yeah i don't know it's just it's such a i don't really and maybe i'm just maybe i'm not smart enough to understand like you said when you first watched it you weren't sure you got it maybe like maybe in 30 years it'll make more sense to me but i just i didn't find him funny and i didn't I couldn't anyway decipher a sort of like satirical reading super well of him. Yeah. And I just found it kind of flatlined the movie, which is interesting because I don't know if you read about the famous lost finale. (laughs) I I read a little bit about this. Yeah. So apparently the film was supposed to then end after all of this. And there's still bits of it where the, the, the Russian ambassador He's trying to take pictures. He'll get pictures of the big board. He'll see the big board, which George C. Scott is is upset about. And then there's the fight, which leads to the famous, you can't fight in the war room. And so near the end of the film, you'll notice that he he sort of breaks off while Strangelove is giving his speech. And he has another secret camera, which he's taking pictures of, which I guess is maybe supposed to imply, like, has he been lying all along? Does the doomsday device really exist? Who knows? But anyway, apparently what was originally scripted to have happened was that Turgidson notices this, freaks out again, 
And then a custard pie fight breaks out and everyone starts throwing pies at each other. And the movie ends with the president and I think it's the Russian ambassador playing patty cake while covered in whipped cream. (laughs) And they shot it and it was in the film. And at the last minute, Kubrick decided to pull it out because he felt it was too farcical. It was just too silly. This was supposed to be satirical. Yeah, there wasn't. It wasn't. It didn't have any commentary. It was just like it was just too wacky. Yeah, which is really interesting to me because that's kind of how I feel about Strange Love. It's just like again, the whole rest of the movie. There's no character that is this over the top, this ridiculous, and it does seem almost farcical, like something from a Mel Brooks movie. Right. And it's weird that that's how he ends the film, knowing that he knew he didn't want to end it on a farcical note. Right. I mean, I think, so this is my I, my pet theory about the title, right? Mm. So title, again, you know, has the this, this secondary title, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned How to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And so the interesting thing about this character, which kind of speaks to your observation that it feels out of place, was not, is the only character that's not based on a character from the original book. Right. Right. All of the others are, you know, sort of, versions of those characters and in some ways i feel like the title speaks to kubrick's breakthrough in turning it into a comedy right and inserting this character of dr strange love into what was like a straight story was this sort of breakthrough of how he learned to stop worrying and love the bomb right or to kind of cope with the the seriousness and the scariness of the of the material was to insert this like satiric or maybe not satirical character. I don't know, depending on how you look at it, satirical or farcical character into an otherwise serious script. And then that kind of flips everything on its head. Right. Hmm. And it gives you permission to like start making fun of the other stuff too. But like, yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, I, I, I find Dr. Strange love the least funny part of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which is weird, but you know, again, like I think George C. Scott throughout is way funnier. And, well, and and like I said, yeah. I think when Sellers is playing the straight the president man, too, yeah, yeah, totally. like those that performance is way funnier to me than when he's being a quote unquote funny character, which is just right. it, it is kind of interesting. It's just a mostly a funny voice, you know. Yeah, we haven't really touched on this, but one of the things I, I I loved about this movie and still love about this movie, and it w- will come up again when we get to The Simpsons, is the production design and lighting. Mm. You know, production designed by Ken Adam, who we discussed in our first episode, You Only Live Twice, because he was very famously the production designer for the James Bond series. And there is very much, the War Room does very much have that sort of like Bond supervillain vibe to it. Yeah, But paired with this like gorgeous lighting from cinematographer Gilbert Taylor, where, you know, the overhead lighting, but then also there are these like shafts of light that creep into the the war room and echoes of Citizen Kane at times. There's also that brilliant shot. I literally wrote it down in my notes where it's very early on in the film when Jack D. Ripper uh, is is sort of talking to to Mandrake and it's a low angle shot, but it's a close up of his face and he's got the cigar and it's like beautifully lit. And he just he literally looks like almost like a god or certainly like someone to be feared. 
But yeah, I was just sort of struck by, again, you know, comedies are not normally known for having particularly <laughs> interesting or beautiful production design or cinematography. You know, it's the, 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 the humor comes out of usually the, the dialogue. So it's tends to be just like set the camera up and, and you know, kind of just be funny. So for them to spend so much time and energy to make such a gorgeous movie, I mean, if nothing else, it's worth watching just for the cinematography and production design alone. Yeah, no, I, to- I totally agree. It's a, it is a very beautiful movie in a lot of ways. There are so many iconic things, very memorable images that come mm-hmm. out of this movie, which I think speaks to also like why it's been parodied is because some of those scenes are just so seared into your brain that like even if you've only seen it once like i like both of us had yeah you you just remember certain scenes very clearly or certain images even really clearly absolutely well now we're going to get to one of my favorite segments the parts that seem like simpson jokes but aren't and i I, there are a lot in this like yeah again sort of speaking to you can kind of feel the influence that this movie had on on the writers obviously the the number one thing that jumped out was the names of the characters here because you've got Buck Turgidson, Merkin Muffley, you know, Merkin being a pubic wig. Uh, but then you've also got major TJ King Kong, Jack D Ripper, which is obviously a play on Jack the Ripper, the um, <laughs> Colonel Bat Guano, which even uh, Colonel Mandrake references like, if that is your real name, I think he says right, yeah. those lines. And then, you, you know, something like Burpleson Air, Air Force Base. <laughs> like, it's just that one actually makes me laugh the most because it's just such a it's just such a silly word. Burpleson. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then like which Burpleson also feels very at home with Colonel Hap Hapablap from, right, the, exactly. from Bob's last last gleaming. So, yeah, there's some there's some absolutely brilliant, brilliant names in this movie that do yeah. genuinely feel like something that would have been ripped out of a Simpsons episode. Right. I mean, I think the Simpsons is always so full of background things and mm-hmm. details like names, names of people, names of stores, names of movies, all that kind of stuff that kind of just add add a little bit of extra to to the episode if you're watching closely. What I like to call VHS humor, the idea that like it's too fast for you to notice it in the moment, but like you if you can pause it yeah. And you like there's there's all these like hidden jokes in the background. One of my right. favorite background gags in in Strange Love is there's several signs that say peace is our profession, which I think right. is the actual like uh, slogan of the Air Force or whatever. But like it all comes to a front when there's this big sign saying peace is our profession and there's a bunch of military men like basically just firing guns randomly at the building in an attempt right. to get to Jack D. Ripper. <laughs> right. Against their own people too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I feel like there's also uh, one of my favorite bits in this movie that again, this is one of the few moments that made me laugh out loud is when they're itemizing the survival kit oh, that yeah. the people on the plane have with them. And maybe we can just listen to a clip of that. 145 caliber automatic, two boxes of ammunition, four days concentrated emergency rations, one drug issue containing antibiotics, morphine. Yeah, I love how it starts off very sort of practically. And you're like, right. oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then it just gets more and more absurd as, <laughs> as it goes on. And it helps that it's being read by this crazy southern drawl. Chewing gum. One issue of prophylactics, three lipsticks, three pair of nylon stockings, 
Shoot, I felt like I'd have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. And then one of the one of the others that's kind of uh, random, but and again, like, don't know if this is actually a reference or not, but. There's a scene as things start escalating with Jack D. Ripper, who's the the maniac who's put all of this in motion, where he's explaining his conspiracy theory to Mandrake. Right. Right. And and at one point he he says to Mandrake, have you ever seen a commie drink a glass of water? (laughs) And it immediately made me think of Scorpio's line. Uh, right. in you only move twice where he's he, where it's one of the ones that you love so much one of right? my fa- yeah one of my favorite moments right where he asks ever see a guy say goodbye to a shoe right <laughs> and you know probably that line was ad-libbed just knowing who played him but but it, it just it just the phrasing and and the sort of spirit of it of kind of buddying up to this guy it, it just felt very very similar to me so i liked i loved that moment as well well and even his whole like his whole concern the floridization of Right. Uh, of of the water is what is making people communists, which unfortunately on the one hand, hits home <laughs> as well. Again, yeah, like I, I back to, circling back to this is a great way. Maybe we're, before we move on, we're circling back to the the thing we started with the timelessness. It is an absolutely absurd thing that I'm sure at the time people were like, "Well, this is this is too much." But in 2022, <laughs> yeah, you're like, hmm. Pretty sure I've heard that come up before. Like it's right. it's that it's, is it's Alex either... Jones level oh, God conspiracy yeah. theory, but you know it's it's making the frogs gay. Like oh my God, it's 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 either funny because it's true or it's just depressing because it's true. But it's funny how parody has sort of well, it's not really funny. I shouldn't say, but how parody has circled back to become reality, yeah. and that is what I think makes this movie so special. Which I when I picked the movie, I didn't really realize it, but the fact that nearly sixty years later, this still resonates and yeah. actually feels more timely than maybe it ever has is a testament to what they were able to accomplish. Let's now sort of dig into the sort of Simpsons connections here. And the main episode we're going to talk about today, which is Sideshow Bob's Last Gleaming. Original air date, November 26, 1995. Written by Spike Ferenston and directed by Dominic Policino. This was apparently, I learned this from the commentary, this was his first episode as a director. He had been like an assistant director on a bunch of episodes, but this was his first directing gig, which as they point out in the commentary, considering the fact that they basically don't get to reuse anything because it's all new locations, which means all new drawings. They couldn't have given him a more difficult challenge for his first episode, but I think he absolutely nails it. Yeah. And a freelance writer too. And a freelance writer, which they also mentioned resulted in lots of rewriting. Right. And and a very, and not because he was bad. He's a, he's a very well-known Very well-respected writer. writer. Wrote the Soup Nazi episode of, of Seinfeld, arguably the greatest episode of Seinfeld of all time. No soup for you. Right. Very difficult characters and, and you know, and also just the, the house style and everything, I think, was the big, the big challenge. So here's, here's the official plot synopsis from our good friend, the official Simpsons complete guide to our favorite family. <clears throat> While serving his time in a minimum security prison, Sideshow Bob becomes obsessed by TV's detrimental effect on society. During work detail at an Air Force base, he sneaks away and gains access to a restricted hangar that stores nuclear missiles. Meanwhile, the Simpsons travel to the base to watch an air show. During the show, Bob appears on a giant monitor 
and threatens to detonate a nuclear bomb unless all television is abolished in Springfield. In the ensuing panic, Bart and Lisa are separated from their parents. In response to Bob's threat, Mayor Quimby shuts down Springfield's TV stations, but Krusty, sensing a ratings windfall, broadcasts his show from a civil defense shack. Outraged, Bob sets off the bomb, but the antiquated weapon fails to explode. As military forces close in on him, Bob kidnaps Bart and commandeers the original Wright Brothers plane on loan from the Smithsonian towards Krusty's makeshift studio on a kamikaze mission. The slow-moving craft bounces harmlessly off the shack's roof, and Bob is taken into custody. <laughs> I am on the record as saying that Sideshow Bob is my favorite Simpsons character, and basically any episode that he is in is one of my favorites. In fact, I would say my... I've often cited Cape Fear as my all-time favorite Simpson episode. Sure. I love Sideshow Bob. I love Kelsey Grammer as Sideshow Bob. I love any episode with Sideshow Bob. And this is definitely in the top three, top four best Sideshow Bob episodes. Yeah, this is a great one because I really feel like this one features Sideshow Bob at his Sideshow Bobbyist. Yes. It's not it's 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 not that plot driven. It, there are a lot of scenes of just hearing Bob talk about his, the way he sees the world and yes. and getting to be very highfalutin and that kind of stuff that is just so damn funny. It's well, so funny. And Kelsey Grammer's performance in it is just like his... Nobody does a line read like him. I love the scene where he's impersonating Colonel Hapablab and he has to stop himself to say snot party. Sweet Enola Gay, son! Get moving, or I'll tear you up like a Kleenex at a snot party. Right, and he's just exactly. so disgusted, and the line read on it is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, or the or I love his line reading of Kamikaze Mission. I I never planned to escape. You see, this is a, a Kamikaze Mission. It's just, I think them getting Kelsey Grammer for that role. I mean, it's it has to be one of the best pieces of casting in the history of the show. You know, obviously everybody talks about Albert Brooks and all the brilliant stuff he did on the show. But for me, you know, the greatest guest star in Simpsons history has to be Kelsey Grammer. And the the writers have so much fun writing for him because he is sort of this absolute psychopath, which, you know, there's there's I get the sense from writers that it is fun to write that kind of thing because you can just go full hog which you can't necessarily do with them i think it's also why they love writing for burns because burns is so not grounded in reality and he's just like he's apparently like 110 years old and they get to do all these old-timey references like you can always see where the writers are having fun writing yeah and it comes across especially well with the performance because they've got such a brilliant performer doing it yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I, I remember from the commentary, too, though, is that I think uh, they, they said that Sideshow Bob's lines are some of the hardest to write because they are because every single one is so, you know, every word is so specific and they're so clever. Like when you if you actually like looked at how the script is written out line by line, it's like there's so much detail in every single one of those lines. He has such a specific voice it must be really challenging to, to kind of get that right every time, but my God, do they, do they hit it in this episode? So, you know, one of the other uh, guests they have on this uh, episode, right. Is R. Lee Ermey. Yes. Who is known for his role in another Stanley Kubrick film, full metal jacket. And in that movie, he plays the drill sergeant who kind of is the quintessential drill sergeant for 
pretty much every other movie, every other TV show, every other parody of Drill Sergeant. And, you know, again, very, very well used in this episode, but not in a Drill Sergeant role, actually. Kind of in George C. Scott's role, more so. Yeah, and and, and the the character model almost seems to be modeled a little, like he kind of looks a little bit like the George C. Scott character, I noticed. it's mm-hmm. And it's funny, too, because my understanding is that Ermy was actually, a, like he was a drill sh- sergeant, and this was something that Kubrick frequently would do. He was having trouble casting someone who was a believable drill sergeant, and Ermy, I think, was like a cr- consultant like as, to get like the military dialogue correct or whatever. And then eventually he was just like, you're perfect for this. You should just do this. And then of course he just basically went on to play army guys for the rest of his life, including the, the army men in toy story, which was my introduction to him as an actor. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. If you go back and watch Funny. toy story, the army men is played by Arlie Ermy. So. All right, men, you heard him. Code red. Repeat. We are at code red. Recon plan. Charlie execute. Let's move. Move. And he even gets to repeat his, the, you know, the famous quote from Full Metal Jacket to Sideshow Bob when he says, What is your major malfunction, Sideshow Bob? The episode as a whole is essentially like parodies of these these sort of movies, but specifically Dr. Strangelove. And like I said, the, the the moment when he detonates the bomb and they keep doing the freeze frames on people, that's that's taken from a very similar film, Failsafe. And then you also alluded to the fact earlier that this this episode contains multiple digs at Fox, including Fox's owner, Rupert Murdoch. Right. Which they famously, the the network executives at Fox were like, you can't do this. This is not okay. And they're like, well, you can't tell us it's not okay. We have carte blanche. You can't give us notes. And I guess they eventually did run it by Murdoch. And he said, I would be honored to be a prisoner in The Simpsons. Which is, <laughs> It's nice to know that that horrible human being has a sense of humor so right there's some really good digs both at fox specifically and then television in general and you know as much as bob is a villain he's also uh, a sort of lens through which the writers can uh, express some of their opinions i think you know definitely so you have you have you know lots of parodies uh throughout this episode of sort of like sitcom writing of the time you know, you have Vanessa Redgrave as a, again, you only hear this happening in the background inside Joe Bob's listening in disgust, but Vanessa Redgrave is a, is a guest, a guest star on some sitcom. And she, she says that she's going to haul ass to Lollapalooza. And then, and then you hear, you hear, you know, laughter and then the episode ends and you hear the Fox sound effect suggesting that of course it's airing on Fox. But, but yeah, apparently that was kind of an expression of their annoyance with this trope in in sitcom writing of of the time of horny old people. Um, I, I don't know. That's what they say in the, in the commentary, but apparently at the time there were a lot of these sorts of jokes of, you know, like old, older characters who were really, you know, uh, interested in hearing about sex and stuff like that. I think she asks another character if, if they're knocking boots. You're not, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. But, but yeah. So, and then of course at the end you get, the callback with grandpa callback saying with that he's grandpa. going to, he rolls in on a low riding uh, motorcycle and says he's about to haul ass to Lollapalooza, which apparently right. a lot of, they were saying in the commentary, like people didn't get the joke that they were poking fun at the, yeah, know, that they, they were, they were intentionally having a stupid, bad end TV sort of ending. But yeah, a lot of people took it seriously. So there's, there's a couple brilliant lines again my girl Marge has some great just Marge lines like 
like when they're looking at the jet and she goes five tires am i seeing things like she's just <laughs> she can't believe the idea of five tires which is just such a marge like observation marge line yeah uh i love when in that same scene when the military guy is saying this plane is so simple a child could fly it and when lisa asks if she can fly it his response of, of course you cannot right uh, again brilliant <laughs> line reading is just it's spot on yeah <laughs> i love when they are at the air show the air show is about to begin and Colonel Hap Hapablab is like, we're gonna we're gonna go through the history of aviation. Did somebody say box kites? <laughs> and Bart, clear as day, goes no. <laughs> <laughs> but but my one of my favorite bits of writing, and and I distinctly remember catching it when I rewatched this a couple years ago for the first time. You know, when I got the DVDs or whatever, is when when Sideshow Bob shows up on the TV and starts giving his screed about how you know either shut down to EV or are going to detonate this nuclear bomb. I noticed that his voice sounded kind of weird. And I was like, oh, right. Like what? That's weird. What's going on? Well, they, they, it ends up being actually a hint that they, they pay off of that. He's in the Duff blimp and the helium is causing his voice pitch to, to, to increase, but you don't know it at first. And it, it, it's so subtle at first that you almost, if you're not really paying attention you won't necessarily notice it but it's one of those great things i love in mysteries where the clues are actually there from the outset and if you're paying attention you can catch them and i think it's so great that from his first you know from the word go somebody somewhere was like hey we should pitch up his voice because like that's that's gonna pay off a little bit later i just i absolutely love that yeah i mean the you know one of the great things is about the simpsons is when they do these sorts of episodes like the sideshow Bob ones and occasionally other, other ones like who shot Mr. Burns, where they add this sort of like, like a real mystery element or mm-hmm. a real thriller element to it. Stakes. They add right, stakes, stakes in, in a way that you wouldn't expect, which you don't normally get in cartoons. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like a lot of, you know, a lot of writers have also taken a lot of inspiration from that in, in the, in like newer cartoons that have really kind of adopted that tone of of having both like a real mystery and also real comedy side by side. So that's yeah, it's cool to see that kind of taking uh, root. There was other, there was one other little visual thing I noticed, which when I looked it up in the IMDb trivia, I don't think anybody mentioned it. Maybe I just missed it, but I noticed that Bob's prisoner number is A dash one one three, which is a famous animation in joke most commonly seen in pixar movies because it's the it's the animation room at cal arts that a lot of these directors all like basically they all went through and so they sort of started hiding it in pixar movies brad bird who is obviously a now very famous director but was a, a early simpsons uh creative consultant and director he hides it in all of his movies and so yeah i just i had happened to notice and i think maybe i never noticed it before because it was like sd dvd but i'm now watching you know i was watching it on the the quasi hd master on disney plus but i never noticed it before and i just i sort of caught it when i was watching it today so, oh i was like oh there's the a113 there's a yeah. fun little uh little reference should we dig into some of the the clips we have we have pulled yeah let's do it i mean obviously one of the you know there's the the, the overall plot is sort of inspired by movies like dr strange love and failsafe but one of the really explicit references to to the movie is uh, this whole sort of subplot of the mayor and all these other folks sort of in the war room trying to figure out how to respond to Sideshow Bob's plot. So, you know, at this point in the episode, 
uh, we kind of go below the surface. It's one of those, again, classic Simpsons animated moments of going through different layers of the earth. And then you end up in this underground war room and we, we come up and Mayor Quimby is sort of leading this, this committee of people trying to figure out how to respond. City will not negotiate with terrorists. Is there a city nearby that will? No need, sir. We'll find that head case faster than Garfield finds lasagna. Oh, sorry, my my wife thought that was gangbusters. God, two great lines back to back. Yeah, so, you know, just to sort of set up what you're seeing visually here is like, you know, you have this interaction between the mayor and Colonel Hap Hapablap. Uh, but, but also seen in the background is actually Professor Frank dressed up as Dr. Strangelove. Right. Um, and then you have this like, really elaborate, amazing set that, that, you know, mimics the war room from Dr. Strange Love, including the lighting and everything. They were saying on the commentary that apparently like, you know, the animators actually study specific stills from that film and all the lighting to make sure that they're getting everything right. Both the, the, the establishing shot, but also the close-ups too. There's some really beautiful shots in this. The, yeah. the way they render the war room parody the that the sort of hand painted backgrounds and the gradients and the light like it's it's really good i don't think the simpson gets enough credit for that when they you know they're sort of just seen as like it's a cartoon or whatever but there's some really really good filmmaking and artistry on display in some of these episodes because yeah. and it's it circles back to what i said earlier about comedies like normally you just sort of think of it as like just set up the shot let them deliver the line like that's what matters but they mention in the in the commentary there's a great visual gag when Milhouse is in the bomber and then it and and he it then cuts to the next shot and it's Colonel Hap Hapablab is like walking to his thing and Milhouse has ejected himself from the thing and he lands in the background and it's like this little background gag and they said in the commentary they're like oh I think we added that in the storyboard phase just to sort of tie those two scenes together and I was like I never would have thought of that because to me it's just a funny gag Right. That, but it actually serves this purpose of cohesively bringing these two disparate scenes and making them connected. Yeah. So again, totally. I just, there, there's 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 some there's just some really good filmmaking on display in this episode, and I I felt it was worth calling out. Yeah, I mean, to, to your point, like one of the things that sets The Simpsons apart from, say, like a uh, a live sitcom with real actors, right? is exactly those kinds of opportunities, right? Right. Of, of having these visual things happen that you can't do on a sitcom set, right? Because the, because the budget would be insane, right? To have a character like fall out of the sky in the background, <laughs> just, just to connect two scenes together. It's not going to happen, right? That's one of the amazing things about this show being animated. Um, well, and I think it's also the thing that I've always loved about the show that, has driven me insane about the shows that sort of came after it. And, you know, I'm thinking specifically of family guy, whereas like family guy relied on what I always referred to as like the cutaway joke. So they can't, they can't actually write the, a regular joke. They just have to insert a random joke that is a cutaway and has nothing to do with the plot. And I think that's where the Simpsons has really, and this is a perfect example of like, yes, it's, it's a visual gag, but it's actually serving this like, this story purpose or at least this 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 storytelling purpose of tying these two things together that's what they're so brilliant at is like there's there's no wasted opportunity and they don't ever just rely on oh this is something funny let's just do it like they're they're everything is sort of motivated and 
intended. And I, that's what makes for me anyway, is what makes the show the greatest example of this genre. Yeah, um, totally. Well, we already sort of alluded to George C. Scott's performance. And I, I want to play back this clip of Krusty sort of essentially taking on the, the, the George C. Scott role when he shows up in the, the war room of Maraquimbi. So let's, let's take a listen to that. Gentlemen, it's time we face up to the unface up toable. We must sacrifice television in order to save the lives of our townspeople. Wow! Whoa, ho, ho, let's not go nuts. Would it really be worth living in a world without television? I think the survivors would envy the dead. I appreciate your passion on behalf of your medium, but I'm afraid we're out of options. Television must go. May God have mercy on our souls. Again, like, you know, every line I just love, right? Uh, you know, Miraquimby, the unface-up toolable. I mean, yeah. that's great. Krusty's line. The delivery of it is so weird, I guess, because it seems very sincere. But then the last part, I think the survivors would envy the dead, is kind of <laughs> delivered almost with, like, like he's putting it on. You know, it's yeah. very, it's it's very, very funny. I love it. Well, and we get that, we also get that nice little like musical nod to Strange Love, which we, there's, there's another musical nod to Strange Love when, when Bob is prepping his bomb, he's whistling We'll Meet Again, which is the music that ends Strange Love during the scene of all the nuclear explosions. So before we jump quickly to, there is one other episode we wanted to touch on quickly, but before we do that, is there anything else you wanted to say? You know, I think it's interesting that obviously, again, there's, style references and you know line references and visual references to to strange love but it's the plot is not really that heavily influenced by it but you clearly like it's heavily it's influenced enough that you know what it's doing but it's this is not a you know citizen kane slash (laughs) yeah it's not it's not just like a beat for beat store or you know like we we will get to with something like you know the shining or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street later on in the series like it's it's there's enough references to know where the references are coming from but it's not one of those like plot heavy references which I think is kind of interesting yeah I mean I think you know a couple of interesting things about that like obviously by using Sideshow Bob as the sort of instigator it takes it to this sort of supervillain place yeah which which you know helps helps with the sort of cartoony feel of the show of course but I do think, you know, going back to our conversation about the t- the era too, right? This feels like a very 90s take on nuclear war to me mm. of, of, of just like, you know, well, it's, you know, the, the bomb is old, right? It's best before whatever it is, November 1959, right? And, he's, and, he ma- and Bob makes that great line of like, oh, you know, you couldn't have taken one of the new bombs. No, you had to go for the retro bombs <laughs> or something to that effect. Like, you know, right. But there's this sort of idea that those movies, that that fear of the Cold War, it's all over. And right. now you have Sideshow Bob, who's kind of basically like, you know, not to get too serious here, but he's basically a terrorist in this mm-hmm. in this episode, right? In a super villainy kind of way, but like that's the fear is is like these, you know, un unhinged uh, individuals kind of taking things into their own hands. Like that's the plot. It's not about the United States and Russia. Right. 
right? It's not, it's only, in fact, it's only about one town. It's about Springfield, you know? So I feel like it's part, it's partly, that's just the way that you adapt it to the world of the Simpsons, which is really only ever focused on, on Springfield itself, like only occasionally really starts looking beyond that. And, and also the cartoony tone, but I do think it's also a reflection of the times and the way we thought about nuclear war at that time. I also think, again, I referenced earlier that basically any episode with Sideshow Bob is bound to be one of my favorites. I, it's, it's an interesting turning point in the Sideshow Bob canon, as it were, because, you know, the first, the first episode, he frames Krusty. The second, the second time we see him, he tries to kill Selma. And then, he's, then his rivalry with Bart basically starts to take form. Then the next time we see him is Cape Fear, where he's very much out to get Bart. Then we get the episode where he's trying to become the mayor of Springfield for whatever reason. (laughs) It's never really clear what his motivation or endgame is beyond, I guess, just being mayor of this small American town. But okay, but like it's kind of interesting that now we've gotten to like, like you said, pure super villainy. Like he's his motivation is get rid of TV or he will destroy Springfield and probably more. Like if this if his plan had worked. And even Lisa makes uh, makes reference to this. And it, again, there are stakes, but you know, like it's a cartoon. So obviously they're not, though they have that act break of him like detonating the bomb. And yeah, it's, it feels a little scary. And you really, and, and even the fail safe parody of the zooming in on everyone mm-hmm. is pretty, feels pretty like serious. You know, you don't know how it's going to turn out. And then they quickly pull a Simpsons and right. rats come out of the bomb and it's just a tiny little explosion. But like, yeah, it's just, I, I don't know. It's, I love the the arc of this. And then I'm pretty sure that the next time we see Sideshow Bob is when we get my, yeah, it might have to be my favorite or tied with Cape Fear for my favorite. The next time we see him is Brother from Another Series where they bring in his brother played by Niles from Frasier. And it's, right. it's that is one of the best Simpson episodes of all time. Yeah, their dynamic is so good. So yeah, it's just interesting that, we, and, and that's also when he, you know, he famously says to Bart, like, for once, I'm not trying to kill you. Like, he's just, you get a great sort of arc. I love this episode just because it's Sideshow Bob. And anytime Sideshow Bob is on screen, I'm, I'm a happy camper. So before we wrap things up, though, let's, let's, there was one other episode you wanted to talk about quickly, which was Homer the Vigilante. Yeah, yeah, totally. So this, in this episode, Homer basically decides to to take the law into his own hands because there's a cat burglar about in his neighborhood. And so he kind of rallies together a posse of people and they start patrolling and all this kind of stuff. And throughout the episode, he's, it becomes clear that he's starting to get drunk on power, basically. So Homer goes to like a weapons shop, basically, and they're trying to uh, get some guns so that they can, they can, you know, defend their, their town. Uh, Woof. And um, he, he goes to the back or I guess he's talking to the, um, the owner and the owner basically is like, Oh, I'm like into your mission of becoming a vigilante. And he, he takes him to the back to show him something. Um, And uh, what he shows him is a nuclear bomb. (laughs) Go figure. Um, and Homer has this fantasy uh, when he's looking at the bomb. Radiant, cool, crazy nightmares in New Jersey nowhere. Put this in your pipe and smoke it. How now, brown bureaucrats? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh. 
Maynard G. Krebs. Hey, see this sign? Jerry. Obviously, I think the thing that immediately I took away from this was just like how spot on they replicated the look of this scene from Strange Love. Because when it was done, it was in the 60s. And so, like, you know, we didn't have CGI and all this stuff. So there's sort of this very, like, I don't even really know how to describe it, but they mimic it perfectly like the just everything about the look of it if you compare it it's it's it it's so good again like the filmmaking on display here is just impeccable the other thing i really love about this this scene is just <laughs> number one the the writing for the beatniks yeah. is hilarious i actually think it's like just a, a fun writing opportunity to write something that is both highfalutin and kind of like pretentious but also pretty like good and fun like clever <laughs> the the other the other sort of pretty it's, it feels like a deep cut to me but i don't know maybe you're more familiar with this character is that he at the end he says take that maynard g krebs <laughs> which i had no idea i had no. to look up what the hell this was a reference to yeah apparently it's a character a beatnik character from the sitcom the many loves of dobie gillis Okay. Which, I don't know. I guess it was <clears throat> one of the first sitcoms to really focus on teenagers. Oh. Um, and so Dobie Gillis hmm. is this teenager who's trying to find his true love, I guess, by dating lots of women. And his best friend is Maynard G. Krebs, who is a beatnik. And they have a kind of, a bit of like a, a an odd couple sort of dynamic where Dobie Gillis is a little bit more, like a little smarter and a little bit more put together and Maynard G. Krebs is kind of a bit of a weirdo and and lazy, doesn't like work, that kind of stuff. And I'm just yeah. looking it up and it turns out that Maynard G. Krebs is played by Bob Denver, who is perhaps better known, well, certainly better known as Gilligan from Gilligan's Island. Right, right. So, so yeah. yeah. That's kind of, so that was kind of like a fun, again, a weird reference, very like, yeah, you very know, Simpsons love, th- love this kind of stuff that like, this was probably like at the time that it came out was probably like a pretty well-known show, but like, you know, by this point, not so much. Although apparently in the U S this show, this sitcom re-aired on Nickelodeon. Uh, so like young people in the nineties right. might have actually been familiar with this weird, right. like deep cut 50s sitcom thing. But, but yeah, anyway, so that was, that was one of the weirder things in this clip I had hmm. to look up. <laughs> Well, let's circle back to the film and sort of give our final verdicts on it. What is your final take on on Doctor Strange Love or how I learned to stop wearing and love the bomb? Yeah, so I feel like, you know, this is a movie you should see, right? This is mm-hmm. a movie that like just for if you love film, if you love Kubrick, if you, you know, love comedy, if you love The Simpsons, it's probably a movie you should see just because it's like it's culturally important. All that said, <laughs> I I had I was a very uneven viewing experience for me. Mm-hmm. There are parts of this movie I love, and then there are other parts that I find kind of slow. And even the f- parts that are meant to be funny, I don't always find funny. So right. yeah, I I, I I think I enjoyed it overall, but like it, I, it's more intellectually stimulating than enjoyable for me, I guess. Right. Yeah, I would I would 100% agree. You know, I, I said before, if you had asked me prior to this week what my favorite Kubrick movie is, I would probably say Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> and now if you were to ask me, 
I'd probably still say Dr. Strangelove, but that's only because I really, like I said, I don't particular, I'm not particularly fond of his movies. And I, I think part of that is the home viewing experience. I feel like you're right. His movies are, they're not movies that are designed for that. And they certainly work much better in a cinema. I've only ever seen the only film of his that I've seen in the cinema is 2001. I've never watched 2001 at home. I probably never will watch 2001 at home because I will never make it through 2001 at home. So it would be kind of interesting to see this film with an audience in a cinema and how it maybe might play differently. And but I, I do wonder if the things that I found made it feel less humorous how much that has to do with the time that we're watching it in. Right. Should watch it another decade later. Yeah. Like, and if I, or if I, even five years ago, I don't, I don't know. There's no way for me to, to say with great deal of certainty, but there is, there is a part of me that does think that that really did color the experience. But I will also say like, I just truthfully, I didn't find it to be particularly funny. And I just feel like for a comedy that's considered to be one of the greatest comedies of all time. Yeah. um, It should have been a lot funnier. Right. And and that's the thing is like, I mean, I, it just kind of makes me feel dumb that, (laughs) that, you know, the, the writers of the Simpsons love this movie so dearly and see it as such an influence on their sort of perspective on comedy. And I just, I feel like I don't get it. Really, like I, I, there are parts of it I love, but it doesn't make me laugh out loud like some other things do. So mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not like, I, I don't know that I will be rushing back to revisit this anytime soon. It's yeah, I feel, I feel very mixed about it. It's definitely a film that I respect, but maybe don't enjoy. Yeah. Which yeah. is how I feel about all of Kubrick's films that I've seen so far. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I genuinely do enjoy some of his other movies. So maybe on that note, um, if people did enjoy this movie, what other movies do you think you'd recommend that people check out? I do think it's worth checking out Failsafe, which is, like I said, it's sort of the straight version of this. Uh, it was It was released think the same year or shortly thereafter it's directed by Sidney Lumet who pretty much over the pandemic has become one of my favorite filmmakers mm. you know we spoke in the karate kid about economical filmmaking he is a very economical filmmaker very powerful filmmaker I and every film of his that I've seen I come away sort of just like holy crap that was amazing it is if any if you were discomforted by Dr. Strangelove I think you will be even more discomforted by failsafe <laughs> because there's no humor to sort of balance it. Right. But it contains some like some truly great writing, some truly great performances. Um, it is extremely powerful. So I do think it's worth people checking out. And then, yeah, the other the other Kubrick movies like I think this is a good source is a good introduction to Kubrick for people who haven't maybe aren't super familiar with his films because it it is an easier entry than we both it's funny you mentioned that clockwork orange was your introduction to kubrick it was also my introduction to kubrick and i am that's enough to put a lot of people off i'm sure yeah i literally watched that movie once and then immediately sold my dvd because i disliked it so much i i mean for my money i think uh the easiest entry points are uh if you can see 2001 a space odyssey in theaters yes i could i think that that is a good entry point and then actually, weirdly, I think, you know, maybe I'm misremembering it because I haven't seen it in a while. But I think one of the easiest entry points is actually Full Metal Jacket, hmm. which is a which is a super intense movie. But my memory of it is that it's in some ways more traditional. 
in terms of just the overall flow of the movie and, and everything. It's it's easier to get, I guess. And and obviously also has the connection to this movie of talking about the military and, and masculinity and the and American culture and all of that kind of stuff too. I've to be honest, I've actually never seen Full Metal Jacket. And oh, it was man. sort of it's it was on the short list for us for something that we would maybe visit. But mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely I'm now that you talk about it, I am sort of intrigued to check it out. This week was my choice, which means now it's your turn to pick our next screening at the Springfield Googleplex. (laughs) So, yeah, my choice for next time around is Planet of the Apes, which (laughs) I it's it's like a perfect balance for me. It's, It's like a sweet and salty sort of situation where, you know, it's both a really thought provoking sci fi movie that is really creative and also kind of corny and over the top and the, the, and the the special effects don't always hold up. And I kind of love that combination. And I think it, it, it holds maybe a similar place in the, the hearts of the Simpsons writers as well in that, like it's a source of, of creativity and inspiration and also really kind of funny to revisit. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm I yeah I've never seen it. It is a blind spot in my you know cinephile card sheet. Whatever the, I don't know. What the, it's it's something that I've been meaning Your passport. to see. My passport. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it's something I've been meaning to see for years and just kind of never really gotten around to it. Obviously, the Simpsons episode that heavily features it is one of the best, like a top ten episode of all time. So I'm very excited that we're going to get to revisit that. And then also that I'm finally going to get to see this movie. So I'm I'm super stoked to, to dive into this with you. And it's going to be one of those ones where, again, we get to see if it holds up or if it's just nostalgia. Yeah. So that'll be that'll be really fun. So thank you all so much for for listening and for joining us on this episode. If you enjoy what you hear, tell your friends, leave us a review, share a tweet, put a post on Instagram, make a TikTok. I don't know, like whatever the uh, kids are doing these days, whatever the kids are doing these days. But thank you so much for listening and uh, tune in next time when we visit the Planet of the Apes. And if you'll excuse me, I have to haul ass to Lollapalooza! See you around the Plex.